Brian McClanahan Show, episode 281. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. Go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. You can find all those social media accounts there. Also, you can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. That is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Also, go to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, and I do have courses available for purchase that help support the show as well. And you can go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, History.com. Learn True History, that is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. That is also a way to support the show. And you can get your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that Shop tab at the top of the page. It'll take you right out to my web store. You can get all kinds of cool uh, materials with my logo on it. So if you want stickers, if you want uh, shirts, you want skins for electronic device, all kinds of great stuff with the Brian McClanahan Show logo, and of course, that also helps support the show. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and that is a review that just came out this last week by Aaron Coleman on the quote-unquote anti-federalists. This review appeared in Law and Liberty, and the reason I want to talk about this today is because this is foundational, right? If we, we have this slogan, think locally, act locally, which, by the way, people are taking to heart. I just got an email from a listener who said, look, I, I went out and I did what you said. I thought locally and act locally. I ran for city council and I won by one vote. I mean, think about how amazing that is. He wins by one vote. He runs for city council. He's trying to make a difference in his community. And that's what we all need to be doing uh, for this. And maybe at some point he asked if there's any pointers that he, I could give him for things that you could do. Um, maybe one of the next podcasts I'll do, an episode I'll do on uh, what you could do uh, kind of practical application if you are involved in local government. Some things that would be uh, interesting to try to advance uh, a liberty agenda or to try to better your community. Um, but regardless, I mean, I think this is great. People go out and they do this. They think locally. They act locally. But we have to have the intellectual foundation for these things. And the quote-unquote anti-federalists are part of that. I mean, we, we can't understand the American political tradition without understanding that, uh, that uh, anti-federalist tradition. Now, I say quote-unquote anti-federalist because they really weren't the anti-federalists. They weren't anti-federalists at all, really. I mean, these people were not against a federal republic. In fact, you can make the argument, and I have, in both my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution and in my American Constitutions course at McClanahan Academy, that... Uh, these people are really just Federalists. They were the real Federalists. Their opponents were the Nationalists. And so this was an ingenious way of distorting the language, the lexicon of the day, by saying, hey, look, we're the Federalists and they're the Anti-Federalists. These people are against a Federal Republic. We're for it. We're for a Federal Republic because this Constitution is Federal. Now, Part of that is true in that 
if you look at the way the Constitution was ratified and, and of course, sold to the states, they were selling a federal republic. But if you look at the way that the Constitution has been implemented, well, we got a national government. And, of course, a lot of these federalists who were supporting the Constitution were nationalists. They were closet nationalists or open nationalists. I mean, some of them were. You know, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, for example, is a nationalist. Now, he's selling the Constitution based on federal principles. But if you look at what he said in Philadelphia, if you look at his career, this guy is a nationalist. Same thing with Alexander Hamilton. This is why, again, I, I wrote a book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Because Hamilton was a nationalist, and he was selling the Constitution based on federal principles. This is where the opponents of the document were prescient in saying, look, what we're going to get here is a national government. What's going to happen is nationalism. If you ratify this document, unless they agree to every promise they're making, we're going to have a national government. And that's not what the founding generation, to a man, wanted. There were, of course, proponents of the document that firmly believed we were getting a federal republic out of the Constitution. They were, uh, of course, bamboozled by the nationalists. I mean, as soon as Hamilton becomes Secretary of Treasury on September 11, 1789, the first disastrous September 11th in American history, uh, it's all over because Hamilton set out to control the future of America by implementing his nationalist vision for America, for the central authority. And it just steamrolled from there. So, uh, I mean, this is early on. And you can even look at the first Congress as problematic. I did a, a podcast episode on the first Congress and how uh, if you want to talk about where the Constitution went wrong, it's the first Congress. <laughs> People ask me this all the time. Hey, where did, that first, where did the Constitution go off the rails? First Congress, 1789 because they started doing things they said they wouldn't do. And, of course, the opponents of it at that point were just labeled you know, hysterical. Uh, these people were um, not, uh, not consistent with what they, what they thought government would be. I mean, these people are just roadblocks. No, they're standing up and saying, wait a second here. Uh, this is not what you told us you were going to do when we got this Constitution. Now you're going 180 degrees the other way. So I want to talk about this book review by Aaron Coleman at Law and Liberty. And if you don't know who Aaron Coleman is, he wrote a really good book. Um, and it's, I, it's one I would recommend. It's entitled The American Revolution, State Sovereignty, and the American Constitutional Settlement, 1765 to 1800. Uh, and Aaron Coleman teaches in Tennessee. Um, he is a, a very good scholar on the Constitution the uh, early Federal Republic, um, he knows his stuff. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to see that there are people out there that do this, and uh, he's one of them. But he, he wrote this review for Law and Liberty, which is the Liberty Fund. It's a Liberty Fund website, if you're not familiar with Liberty Fund. It, again, is another very good organization that promotes, um, as it says, liberty. I mean, this is uh, it's it's not libertarian in terms of an ideology, but it promotes uh, uh, decentralization, uh, the original constitution, free economies. I mean, this is a and they have these wonderful seminars. If you're a scholar, that you can get involved in, uh, where they um, we just you, you meet with other scholars, like-minded scholars, and you talk about various issues. But this particular book review is entitled Remembering the Anti-Federalists Rightly, 
and it's um, it's re- it's a review of excuse me, an anti-federalist constitution by Michael Faber. So this is a new book um, on the anti-federalists, and <clears throat> apparently, I mean, I haven't read this book yet, uh, but Faber, according to Coleman, does a pretty good job with the topic, and um, this is an interesting process because you know for years the anti-federalists were kind of the uh, the forgotten men of the founding generation uh, but they've there's been a, a a resurrection or a renaissance of their uh, of their opinions and a lot of that has to do of course with the way Americans are starting to think locally and act locally more and more of them are so there's now an attention being uh, focused on these anti-federalists and I think Faber coming out with this book, and of course, um, you know Coleman uh, reviewing this. Uh, Faber coming out with this book uh, is is going a long way to help again resurrect the uh, opinions of these anti-federalists in re- in regard to the Constitution. So I'm going to read some of this, and I think that again Coleman does a very good job. It's not a long review, but I'll I'll comment where I need to on uh, on some of the on some of the points here. But he begins, for most of American history, anti-federalists, those opponents of the Constitution. Again, we need, to, we need to say these people were the opponents of the Constitution. The Federalists were the proponents of the Constitution. It doesn't mean the anti-federalists were anti-federalists. They really weren't. They're the real Federalists. Played the role of loser. The attention received from scholars castigated them as men of little faith. Arch-conservatives troubled by the rising democratic tide of American politics. Now, this is an interesting point. Stop there for a second, because as Coleman's going to talk about, and as Faber discusses, um, there's three points here. Um, Some of these anti-federalists were very democratic. In fact, the thing that they didn't like about the Constitution was that they thought it was too anti-democratic. And you did have, certainly, anti-federalists, proponents and opponents, or opponents of the document here, you had, you had opponents of the document who were conservative. I mean, you had people like John Lansing and John Hancock and uh, uh, Patrick Henry. But in many cases, the proponents of the document were able to sell it based on the fact that the opponents were too democratic. The opponents were Jacobins. So this term conservative is problematic when talking about these individuals. And, I mean, look, we can make a case that uh, this is the the anti-federalists were the real American conservatives, um, but you could also say, well, and these federalists were conservative in their own way. So this is where you get into this very sticky and tricky issue of American conservatism, um, and I've talked about this before. I mean, you you could say that Jefferson was a conservative in his in his adherence and consistency on federalism, and that was the foundation of his political thought was federalism. So in that way, he really is an American conservative. On other issues, <clears throat> he's much more of a reformist. So um, let's, let's continue. Among the only credit they received came from their calls for a Bill of Rights. Beginning in the late 1970s, anti-federalist fortunes started to shift. The first glimpse of this change came with Herbert Storing's collection of anti-federalist writings. Storing's slim but compelling essay opening the collection what the anti-federalists were for, revealed how the opposition of the Constitution stemmed from serious philosophical concerns and differences with their Federalist counterparts, and not just obstructionism or pro-slavery partisanship. This is very important. I think that Storing did a 
wonderful service to American history by collecting these essays and showing that it's not just slavery, as um, <laughs> as some would suggest, or just mere obstructionism. I mean, these people just want to block stuff. There is a real intellectual strain to these people and what they wanted. Coleman continues, Saul Cornell's The Other Founders, Anti-Federalism and the Dissenting Tradition in American History, took Storing's findings a step further by exploring the social background of anti-federalists and, more importantly, tying their political thought in opposition to the American tradition of resisting centralized authority. Finally, in 2011, Pauline Meyer's ratification, the people debate the Constitution, placed the anti-federalists, a term she avoids using, and rightfully so, that's my line, at the center of her story. For Meyer, the Federalists secured victory in the ratification conventions through political maneuvering rather than through the inherent forces of their arguments. This is 100% true, though Meyer also misses some things in that book. I mean, this thing is a monster study, and it was needed. But what she misses, and I mean, it's amazing how she misses this, is how important this decentralization was to these anti-Federalists, which she, of course, doesn't use the term, again, rightfully so. Look, the, the proponents of the document were forcibly dragging people off the streets to get quorums so they could vote. I mean, they were, they were uh, uh, making it to where you couldn't publish opposition documents. I mean, they were ingenious in their use of political power to ensure that their position would remain ascendant. I mean, so the anti-federalists uh, were being, uh, were being uh, pushed back, uh, blacklisted. I mean, th this, is, this is true. I mean, for example, in Philadelphia... The opposition couldn't even get their their documents published in the press. Same thing in Connecticut. I mean, so you can't really have an opposition if they can't have a voice. Um, she says, or Coleman says, this made anti-federalists and their arguments once again relevant for scholars as anti-federalist criticism were, criticisms were not addressed forthrightly in the debates and thus not really vanquished. Despite these shifting fortunes, there remained no single comprehensive treatment of anti-federalist political thought. Michael Faber and his anti-federalist constitution, the development of dissent in the ratification debates has changed that. Building on the works of Storing, Cornell Meyer, as well as his earlier work on the Federalists, Faber argues that a combination of disorganization and tactical missteps forced the anti-federalists to transform their political thought from one aimed at broad opposition to working to secure changes to the constitution. So yes, the anti-federalists made mistakes. They, the federalists outmaneuvered them. I think this is clear in how everything worked out. It wasn't that their arguments weren't correct, because I think they've all been proven correct, for the most part. It was that the anti-federalists made mistakes in selling their arguments to the public, and not just that, they made mistakes in uh, trying to get their positions broadly accepted, because the federalists were working better and in overdrive and in overtime to try to ensure that these arguments did not see the light of day. But I'll talk more about that in the different phases of the Anti-Federalist in just a minute. Uh, Going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. 
And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McLeanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McLeanahan Academy. You sign up, it's free, and I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do, but I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 the present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, You've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about the quote-unquote anti-federalists and, of course, uh, Aaron Coleman's very good review of Faber's new book on the anti-federalists, an anti-federalist constitution. So let's continue with this essay. Again, not long, but um, one that we need to get into because there are three parts to this. Uh, so he says, all right, first, we have phase one, the three strands of anti-federalist thought. Coleman continues, Faber, an assistant professor of political science at Texas State University, San Marcos, characterizes the initial wave of anti-federalist opposition as lacking coherence, with a myriad of arguments leveled simultaneously. Within the chaos, however, Faber identifies three related but distinct strands of political thought. He calls these strands rights anti-federalism, power anti-federalism, and democratic anti-federalism. Of the three, rights anti-federalism proved the most rationally developed and Cogently argued, rights anti-federalism maintained that with the Constitution's conspicuous lack of a Bill of Rights, tyranny became an inevitability. Only by protecting rights at that moment when they seemed threatened by the proposed Constitution could this slide into tyranny be overcome. Thus, rights anti-federalists called for either outright rejection of the Constitution or a Bill of Rights to be amended to the document. I think this is a nice description of these anti-federalists. And what Coleman does say later on is that, I mean, look... You can't just say these guys are rights anti-federalists, these guys are power anti-federalists, these guys are democratic anti-federalists. Because I mean, the, the, they blended at times. And they could be one or the other. I mean, you could say this quote could very easily fit with this, but he's putting it here. I think what, and, and Coleman says this at the end, I'm, I'm not going to try to steal his thunder, but I mean, it's 100% accurate. What you need to say is the anti-federalists, the opponents of the document, were really concerned about centralization. The, the real issue in Philadelphia, the real issue in the ratifying conventions was always one thing, centralization, nationalism. It was an opposition to nationalism that drove the opponents of the document, whether it was uh, the Bill of Rights, which if we look at the preamble to the Bill of Rights, 
it's clear these are restrictive clauses. They're restrictive clauses on the potential abuse of power from the central authority. So it's not necessarily rights that's driving it. It's a fear that centralization is going to destroy rights. Because the states, I mean, the argument against the Bill of Rights is just, look, Roger Sherman, Alexander Hamilton, they all said, look, we don't need a Bill of Rights. Every state already has a Bill of Rights. But the, but the fear was that centralization and the way that the Constitution was written would make that impossible to enforce. So Coleman continues, Power anti-federalism, as the name suggests, feared the immense power granted to the central government. And adherents believed that the Constitution's powers should be well-defined and limited only to those issues clearly national in scope, such as war and peace. Yet the scope and ambiguity excuse me, of the Constitution's powers, particularly over the judiciary, standing armies, and taxation, which Faber believes anti-federalists considered the most grievous examples of a power too extensive, suggested that the framers sought to consolidate the union of sovereign states into a, de- into a centralized nation. The final strand, democratic anti-federalism, while boasting fewer adherents than the other two groups, was well represented in the first wave of essays. This group typically argued the, that the Articles did not need replacing since state governments remained answerable to the people of those states. At the heart of democratic anti-federalism is the fear of this new government, with only one element, the House of Representatives being directly elected by the people, squinted towards aristocracy and undermined the revolution support of popular sovereignty. So, again, putting it's, it's very hard to break these things apart and say there's this group, this group, this group. I think that um, there's so much overlap. Um, and even all three of these arguments, if you look at the three of them, and again, this is what Coleman says, what I just said, if you look at the three of them, um, you find that um, they all are basically a, an expression of a fear of centralization, right? I mean, if you look at democratic anti-federalism, it's a fear of centralization. The states are going to be abridged. If you look at power anti-federalism, the states are going to be abridged. If you look at rights anti-federalism, the states are going to be abridged. I mean, look, the 10th Amendment in the Bill of Rights was actually the first on many of the proposed lists, so it's, it comes down to power, all of it, all of it. These strands of anti-federalist thought, Faber contends, also share distinct but not exclusively sectional allegiances. The stronghold of rights anti-federalism resided in the southern states. Faber explains why the slaveholding South as a bastion for rights anti-federalism may not be as odd as it first appears. With its culture, political power, and economic ideal rooted in plantation owners who exerted substantial power over their property, Southern landowners wanted assurances that the Constitution restrict their property rights. Without these assurances, many Southern plantation owners feared the Constitution's ambiguous powers endangered the institution of slavery and with it their economic and political power. This is an interesting argument, one I could just spend an entire podcast on, episode on, because there were many Federalists, apparently, according to the traditional historical interpretation, who were drawn to the Constitution because it protected slavery. So which one is it? Are the anti-federalists protecting slavery or the federalists protecting slavery? Or is slavery really not as important as either one of these groups would make it out to be in terms of these people that focus on it entirely too much? Power anti-federalism, a contrast, found its firmest foothold in the Northeast. Many Northeast and anti-federalists feared that the potential of a centralized nation, which would control the states, threatened the autonomy of their town governments. 
This trepidation explains why so many power anti-federalists called for local towns to retrain the authority to issue instructions to the national representative. Democratic anti-federalism, with its call for government responsive to the people and a suspicion of distant governments, had its center in Western communities such as Kentucky. But again, as Coleman points out, you can't say the power federalists were all anti-federalists were all in the Northeast. I mean, this is ridiculous. You can find them all over the place. Phase two, the ratification debates. The bulk of an anti-federalist constitution concentrates on anti-federalist writings and political maneuvering during the state ratification debates. Traditional examinations of the ratification contests often isolate those debates, treating each one independently from the other. Faber, however, follows the chronology of the debates as they happened. This approach produces a somewhat disjointed and at times difficult to follow narrative, as Faber skips from state to state and argument to argument before settling into chronological chapters on individual debates. Faber's decision to contextualize these debates, however, plays, pays dividends. Excuse me. It allows him to demonstrate, debate by debate, how the anti-federalists shifted the nature of the dissent from outright opposition to demands for amendments. This contextual approach also permits Faber to examine neglected or forgotten anti-federalists. The red example is the Virginia essayist Senex, who, although publishing only one essay, ranked as the most convincing oracle of both moderation and rights anti-federalism in Virginia. Incorporating these neglected opponents does offer readers a more comprehensive understanding of anti-federalist thought. For Faber, these forgotten anti-federalists deserve as much credit for transforming anti-federalist resistance to the Constitution as do more notable ones, such as Federal Farmer or Brutus. Faber may be correct on this point, but he offers little evidence that these minor anti-federalists ever influenced the debates in any meaningful way. I think this is, I mean, Coleman points this out. This is, prob- this is problematic. Even saying the Federalist papers influenced anything is a little bit of a stretch. Overall, I mean, look, this is where Jefferson says, well, the Federalist essays are the most important essays expounding the Constitution. So because of that, and because of who wrote them, these things have become like, uh, you know, the Bible in American uh, political state worship. But the, the problem is that they weren't really that influential, even in New York. And so when you have these smaller essays, I mean, how much influence did, these, did one essay really have? Or... I mean, how much influence did, these hot air, did this hot air really have at all? I mean, that's, that's a question you have to ask. People had already made up their mind, for the most part. And this is where the maneuvering and everything else comes into play. Um, considering that many of these minor writers published only one essay, often in low-circulation newspapers or without reprint in other publications, leads one to wonder if their influence is more prominent to their contemporaries' thought or to Faber's. Very good point, I think. And I think an important point in understanding, look, the most important quote-unquote anti-federalist and the one that everyone cited constantly was George Mason, who kicked it off, and this is where everyone responded to. I mean, they were responding to Mason. And there were others. But, I mean, Mason was his objections to the Constitution. This is where people really focused their attention. Nevertheless, Faber's painstaking reconstruction of the debates reveals the tactical mistakes and victories, missed opportunities for victory in New Hampshire and Maryland, the evenly matched contests of Virginia and Massachusetts, how anti-federalists snatched defeat from the jaws of victory in New York, and the anti-federalist victories in North Carolina and Rhode Island. With each step, anti-federalists increasingly responded to early federalist victories by banning their scattershot opposition in favor of more focused arguments for amendments to the Constitution. This transformation peaked with the Virginia, New York, and North Carolina conventions. By the time those conventions convened, the Constitution's ratification was secured. 
The high drama of those debates did not center on acceptance or rejection of the Constitution, but turned to the prospects of trying to shape rather than resist the new government. In the end, the legacy of anti-federalists rests on the notion that while they could not keep the republic, they at least perhaps avoided tyranny and live their lives in peace. In this effort, the anti-federalists succeeded more admirably than perhaps even they thought. So, I mean, that's that's great. Um, I think that, uh, again, you're looking at how influential these things are. And uh, if Faber says they, they crafted the Constitution, I think that this is sort of true and sort of not. Um, you know, how successful are the anti-federalist arguments long term? I don't think they were very successful at all. But Regardless, because you look at what the monstrosity in D.C. is doing, though, again, this is foundational stuff, because if we're going to think locally, act locally, you got to understand where your intellectual ammunition comes from. And you have to go to the opponents of the document. Though, though, I would say, you also have to go to James Wilson in his State House yard speech. You have to go to some of the arguments being made in support of the Constitution, because this puts the nationalists on their heels. Well, look, here's a guy, James Wilson, who supported the document, and he's saying, well, you know, the Constitution's powers are limited by what it says it has, and then the state's unlimited powers. That puts the, the nationalists on their heels. If you go back, even Hamilton was saying these type of things. If you use that and say, well, I mean, look, these are what the proponents of the document were saying it meant, then you, you create an argument that's almost airtight. What's really interesting is that people like Joseph Story, and this is something that, of course, Coleman doesn't get into. Joseph Story, and I talk about this and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, which, again, I have a class on that, Plain Hand Academy. Joseph Story took the arguments of the anti-federalists and said this is what the Constitution means. Right? So the anti-federalists are actually problematic if you look at how the nationalists twisted the document. He said, yeah. Well, the anti-federalists, the opponents of the document were essentially saying that we were going to have a strong executive. Well, yeah, that's what we got, and that's what we need. Or the opponents of the document said, would we get centralization? Well, certainly, this is what we got. This is what we need. So see, these arguments have been turned. This is really interesting. The arguments were turned and used against decentralization and federalism. Not for it. So really, I mean, you can look at the anti-federalists, the opponents of the Constitution, the real federalists. You can look at them and say, well, I mean, this is important to understand these people because they're saying important things about American government. The federalists did the, the, the nationalists did the exact same thing. And I think the stronger argument does come from using people like James Wilson or Alexander Hamilton for defense of decentralist positions than the opponents of the document. All right, so wrapping up, um, Coleman concludes, Faber's distillation of the anti-federalist thought into three strands and his argument for their sectional distinction creates interpretive problems. <clears throat> Despite offering scholars um, uh, a shorthand for untangling the varied and often repetitive arguments made by the Constitution's opponents, those three strands lack the clear delineation and sectional distinction Faber suggests. Too often, the distinctions appear forced. As a case in point, Faber quotes William Grayson, who's, of course, from Virginia, saying that in the first place, I think liberty a thing too much, of too much importance to be trusted on the ground of implication. It should rest on principles expressed in the clearest and the most unequivocal manner. Faber labels this passage an expression of Rice anti-federalism, but since it deals explicitly with the ambiguous nature of a congressional power, 
you could just as easily have designated it as power anti-federalism. The same holds with the for his sectional differences. While Faber does a shoe of Saul Cornell's socioeconomic explanations in favor of political reasons for these sectional distinctions, nevertheless, the strands of thought and sectional distinctions he claims exist disappear in favor of general, a general exploration of anti-federalist positions. Faber even admits throughout that these three strands do not remain separate, or that while New York anti-federalists adhered to power anti-federalism, there were rights anti-federalist appeals as well. One could go on, but Faber's numerous admissions suggest that he strains too hard to find distinctions. A reason for these strained distinctions comes from the implicit suggestion that if a writer is talking about liberty, he must be a rights anti-federalist. If state sovereignty, he must be a power anti-federalist. And popular support means it's democratic anti-federalism. This overlooks how anti-federalists feared consolidation above all issues precisely because the loss of state sovereignty equaled to the loss of both liberty and popular government. That is the money quote from the piece right there. This overlooks how anti-federalists feared consolidation above all other issues precisely because the loss of state sovereignty equaled or equated to the loss of both liberty and popular government. That is the best line from the piece. His interpretive problems present themselves most clearly in Faber's counterfactual account of what an anti-federalist constitution would have looked like had they written the document. Guided by the framework of the Constitution, Faber imagined an anti-federalist constitution includes a we the people of these sovereign states preamble, a declaration of political principles similar to the revolutionary state constitutions, and revisions to congressional authority including the elimination of the power of taxation. Although Faber may have designed this counterfactual exercise as a teaching tool, he does not say the entire section remains at best ancillary to his thesis. At worst, it further undermines ancillary excuse me, to his thesis. At worst, it undermines it further undermines the book's contention for the various threads and sectional differences that constitute anti-federalist thought. For the anti-federalist constitution to take shape as he believes it would have the distinctive elements of their thought had to be less distinct and more fluid across sections than Faber claims. All right. So, this is a very good review of this book, and I think, again, Coleman's a great scholar of this uh, early federal period, and you should pick up his book. I'm going to mention it again. This is Aaron Coleman's book, The American Revolution, State Sovereignty, and the American Constitutional Settlement. Um, again, this review is at Law and Liberty. Uh, the book reviewed is Michael Faber's An Anti-Federalist Constitution. Um, great stuff. And um, this is a topic near and dear to my heart because of my founding father's guide to the Constitution. But... Um, I think uh, you should go out and and, uh, and get at least Coleman's book. But if you're interested in this, he, he lists several other books here. You know, you've got Faber, you've got Storing, you've got Cornell, and you've got Meyer. Meyer's okay. She's got some real problems, so that's one that I, eh, maybe not. But certainly get Aaron Coleman, because I think you will not be disappointed. You need this intellectual ammunition if you're going to think locally, act locally. All right. I will see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>